Have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13. We're going to start there, and we're going to read through 6, verse 12. And as we spend time in this text, this passage poses lots of questions for the church as a whole, and it's a really good place to get into an argument if you're not careful. We don't plan to do that here at Grace Bible this morning, but we will look at this and see what it says. So go with me to Hebrews chapter 5, beginning rather in verse 11, verse 11, not 13, I'm sorry. Uh, About this, we have much to say, Melchizedek, the great high priest of the book of Genesis. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, you don't need solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is possible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heaven, it is impossible. In the case of those who have been Enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the ages to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt for, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those For whose sake it is to be cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's take a road trip together, all of us. And I don't just mean a road trip where you carpool, because that's not really a road trip. It is, but it's not. Let's take a road trip as if we were children, except we're going to be full-grown adults. Let's just be senior citizens together touring the country. We rent one of those really large buses, the one that has the bathroom in the back. And when you see the wrong person headed that direction, you begin to struggle. That type of bus that type of road trip. We're going to drive across the country together. All of us. For some of you, this is your worst nightmare. For others of you, it's just kind of a bad nightmare. This is never really good. And you're going to road trip together from here to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Are we familiar with Gatlinburg? If you are unfamiliar with Gatlinburg, imagine a place of mountains and airbrush and taffy. 
We go there together because we hear that the, there is a musical concert, a three-day concert that we would like to participate in. We want to hear these singers. We'll just go with the Gaithers as the group that we're going to hear because we are already senior adults in this scenario. While we sit there to hear the Gaithers, we are excited about the rocking chairs. We cannot wait to see how big Gloria's hair is going to be. We are going to have the best time when we get there, yet there are meals to be eaten on the way. If you've ever been on one of these buses, you know that you hire someone to be your bus driver. The bus driver gets you from point A to point Z. You will depend upon him for every bit of the trip. He's the one who opens and shuts the doors. He's the one who makes sure that you eat at certain restaurants. If you're a bus driver, you know the restaurants that feed you for free, so that's where you typically take people. You stop that morning at Chick-fil-A. Christian chicken. Justified, sanctified, glorified, waffle fried. And when you get to the Chick-fil-A, all of you in the line have ordered your chicken. And you are very excited about that. Your chicken biscuit, your spicy chicken biscuit, your nuggets, your whatever you order. But you notice that the bus driver simply orders milk. That's weird. Why would a bus driver just order milk? That's all that he has while you sit at this meal. He's sitting in the corner by himself because he's a weirdo who just ordered milk at a restaurant. The day progresses. You move towards lunch. When you get to lunch, you stop yet again. The second time you stop for lunch, you stop somewhere else because you will not go to Chick-fil-A two times in a row. Really, we do, but we'll just imagine that you don't. Second stop, you go to Five Guys because they offer burgers and fries. When you get there, everyone orders their burger. You pay far too much for it because I have become a Whataburger person. The bus driver orders last and all that he orders is milk. That's odd. We're getting closer and closer to Gatlinburg. When you get to Chattanooga, Tennessee, the buckle of the Bible belt where God has shined his eyes. And when you get there, you stop at a Cracker Barrel. Do we know what Cracker Barrel is? I cannot believe that we have not had one placed here yet. But when you get to the Cracker Barrel, you park in the large spot. Everyone goes in, walks around for 47 minutes looking at items that no one needs unless they're walking in a, cat, in a Cracker Barrel and saying to themselves, I probably need that. You get to your table where they've got this candle right there. You already smell like a biscuit. While you're sitting there, everyone begins to place their orders. We all order different things. Some of us order grilled chicken. Others of us order breakfast for dinner, which some people call Brenner, but I call gross. And when you... Let's keep our meals in the right parts of the day, people. But while you're sitting there, everyone's ordering their stuff. Some of you order hash brown casserole. All of us order hash brown casserole. And at the end of the table is your bus driver. Just a bus driver who's getting you from point A to point Z. But this man, while everyone else eats biscuits and cornbread and all of the goodness that Cracker Barrel offers, he orders milk. You've gotten the oddest bus driver in the history of bus drivers. What a very strange sort he happens to be. 
When we get to Hebrews chapter 5, we are talking about people who are just living in milk. They should know better. They have opportunity to know better. There are better options there for them, but they consistently dine on milk. So we've got to do a few things in the text. One is we've got to figure out what that milk is. So let's go again, verses 11 through 14. About this, Melchizedek last week, Melchizedek in a week and a half when I preached to you on Thursday when I get to that text. Melchizedek then, Melchizedek then. About this guy, we have much to say and it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. It doesn't mean their ears don't work. It means they can't process what they're hearing. They're tuning it out. Like I do the train by my house. They're tuning it out like I do Muzak when I'm anywhere other than Chick-fil-A and they're playing Lord I Lift Your Name on High. They're tuning it out the way that we do traffic when we hear it on 288. They're tuning it out like all of us have learned to do with the siren that rings at 1210 every day from Dow. They're tuning out what they hear. The problem of the church in Hebrews, and for many Christians today, because this isn't just about them, it's about us, is that we treat the words of Jesus the way that we treat those things. They had trusted in Jesus initially. Life became difficult because following Jesus is not always your best life now, no matter how many books get sold to us that tell us that it is. And we see this without diligence, without commitment, our hearts are not going to... For the believer in Jesus, we will be wayward and wandering if we are not consistently pointing ourselves in the direction of Christ. What are you talking about, Chad? Well, I'm talking about what the writer of this book has been saying for these first five chapters. Just Let's just do a recall, if you will. 2 verse 1, he said, pay close attention to the message you've heard that you don't drift away. In 3 verse 1, consider Jesus. In 3 verse 8, don't harden your hearts like Israel. In 3 verse 12, take care lest you have an evil desire of unbelief. In 4 verse 1, fear lest you fail to enter God's rest. In 4 verse 11, be diligent to enter God's rest lest you fall by disobedience. 4 verse 14, hold fast to your confession. We are talking about the idea that believers in Jesus, those who have trusted Him should fix our eyes on Jesus and go alongside of that fixing with action, choices, choosing to live as if Jesus matters. Verse 11, we've got much to say. Verse 12, you ought to be teachers, yet you need someone again to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Warren Wearsby says this, one of the first signs of of spiritual regression or what we have historically called backsliding is a dullness toward the Bible. Sunday school is dull. Life groups are dull. The preaching is dull. Anything spiritual is dull. The problem is usually not with the teacher or the pastor but with the believer himself. We are already heading down this road in this passage that the big question that comes from Hebrews chapter 6 always poses. 
can you lose your salvation? Can we be bad enough for God to stop loving us? These basic principles that this writer talks about, as we talk about the frustration, that's what you see in verses 11 through 14, this frustration. They're starting points. The ABCs. Easy as one, two, three, we know that. The church that this writer deals with could not even grasp the starting point of the faith that they belong to. And sometimes we don't either. Verse 13, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So go with me 12 and 13 again. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, this does not mean you stand on stages and we fit you for a microphone every Sunday. This means that if you are placed in a room with someone who does not have any belief or is nominal in their belief or is far from God because of their misunderstanding or lack of understanding in regard to belief, that you could explain to them, these people, that you, me, that we could explain in this trapped room what it means to believe in Jesus. What it means to trust in Jesus. What it means to be committed to Jesus. Dow shuts down, turn around out of the blue. I don't even know if that happens. We'll go with it. And one of your co-workers in the midst of you doing whatever it is you do because they won't let me in that place begins to ask you questions. Can you explain to them what it means to love, follow Jesus? Can you teach? That kind of teaching. We don't need you up here. If you want to come up here, come stand by me. Can you teach? You're spending time with one of your friends or family who doesn't get this. You're at Cherry Berry mixing things into your yogurt. Yogurt is a bootleg version of ice cream. But while you're mixing the stuff, they begin to ask you questions about the Christian faith. Can you teach? This is where we should be. This is where people who gather in rooms like this should be. This is where I should be. Can we teach? They're the starting point that we miss. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Since he's a child. Don't miss the insult he just threw at us. You're living on milk. So what they expect of you, what the writer is saying for believers, you should be at a place where you could explain your faith. But when a person who is outside of Jesus or far from Jesus or has a low view of Jesus looks at you to be taught, you are in the corner with your thumb in your mouth like a baby. That's the Bible, that's not me. Our hearts are unskilled in the work of righteousness. It doesn't get the faithful patience that comes with learning about God. So here's what we do. We settle for cliches. Have you ever noticed how we've gotten good with those? Our society does. Our society likes to say things like, you've got something that you want to do. You're not sure if it's right or wrong. So what they tell you is, follow your heart. What does that take you? That takes you into bad places sometimes. My heart would have me in the worst places on earth. I wouldn't be here right now. What's, 
Pursue the things you desire, what you're being told, but that does not seem to have any shape or guardrails for what desire should be. Oh, it's not just them, though. It's us, people who claim to follow Jesus, do it all the time. Think about the cliches that we use. We love this cliche. We are struggling with our walk with Jesus, so we just say things like, I need to get in the Word. Like the Bible is a magic pill. If I just read, the, I had a Bible book that someone gave me years ago. It was called a book of promises. And the index was stuff that you were struggling. Nothing wrong with that, but it was the stuff that you're struggling with. So whenever I was having a struggle with A, B, C, or D, I would just look up, oh, anxiety. What are the verses on anxiety? And I've made the Bible about me rather than God. The unskilled believers gathering together are not a picture of God's better world. We are at best an echo chamber of people who simply want to convince the convince. You ever see that happening in your own life? We just sit around and have conversations convincing one another that we agree with each other to the 100% of percentage. And at our worst, we are an endless tornado of negativity. Because the very thing that is to unite us, God speaking to us from his word, is void in our conversation. We don't even know how to talk about it. We've confused the right way of talking about God with the right way of living. Because we can all talk. Look, I, I know most of your faces. I see you every Sunday. You can talk God really good. But do we live what we talk we come to the Bible and God gives us parameters as to how to live for, his, for, for Him. As we trust Christ in this living, our individual life, will, our individual will will become more and more clear. This type of life displays the ultimate sovereign will of God. What's God's will for my life? See what His Word shapes for you. And as His Word shapes this, that begins to show you your small part in His sovereign plan. Verse 14, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The, the, the word there for train, it's gymnast talk. So I feel like I'm a really good person to talk about this right now. Gymnastics. It's the idea of Rings. The idea of being able to do things that you could only do if you've worked hard so that you can do them. Solid food is for these people. Is that us? Assurance comes from partaking in what is solid that God has given. Moving from frustration, we see the foundation. There is foundation for us to understand who God is. Go with me, verse 1. Therefore, of chapter 6, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. This is a starting point conversation, by the way, which is really hard to process until you do a little bit of work with it. Uh, 
starting point conversation. Let, let me give you what they've just walked through. One, if you were a Jewish person who had converted to Christianity, you had more background as to what it meant to follow Yahweh than if you weren't. Yahweh, God's uh, when we see capitalized Lord in the Bible, Yahweh, that's who He is. So you have more of an understanding of who this God is than the pagan converts who were coming to the faith. So because of this, there were certain teachings that you were um, more you were more able to adapt to. So when we would talk about language like repentance of dead works and faith toward God, these terms are really salvation terms. And if you were a Jewish convert to Christianity, you would get, oh, this is salvation. This is elementary for us, that we would believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus because the Old Testament has been telling us that God is sending his Messiah for us to save us. The idea of the Spirit there. This is the idea of pneumatology, the the study of how God's Spirit works in us. We use the term baptism there because ultimately your baptism is God has immersed you in Himself. Well, they would get that more than the heathen converts. Laying on of hands, this is a term that we use. Really what that means in the context that we have here is you're being made part of the family. When you would become part of the church at this point in history, those who were already part of the church would circle around you laying hands on you to say you're part of this family of faith. You're part of what God is doing here. So you've got these two concepts that were very understandable for anyone with Jewish background and heritage. And then there's the end time talk. Resurrection from the dead and judgment. So you have these, this idea of God saying this is what salvation is and this is what it means to be part of God's family and this is what it means to walk with God's spirit and this is what it means for you to understand the end of the world and really resurrection and your second life in eternity. So when he says this to these Hebrew Christians, he is saying to them, Look, these elementary teachings you can move on from. Now, we've got to be careful. Because when we talk about elementary, we don't want to miss this. When we talk about this ABC idea, think about your knowledge of the ABCs. You could all sing the song for me. I'm not going to make you. But when we talk about the ABCs, this is something that we learn that we can never leave behind. Because your knowledge of the alphabet is completely needed for you to understand anything else. So what's being said to this church about their foundations is when we get what the gospel of God in Jesus to us is, that is found to understand anything else in regard to Christian teaching. You can't live the right way apart from this gospel. You can't act the right way apart from this gospel. You can't do the right things apart from this gospel. You can't even say the right things apart from this. Everything will be a fleeting distortion of what God would have things to be apart from this gospel. We, when we say we're moving on from this, this is saying you've had this groundwork laid for you, so let's go with the groundwork and realize it's going to affect everything from this point forward. So you look at this and you see that the training has problems. 
When we look at this early church, this training that they received in regard to these three things, it had issues. People would slip back into their old way of life and slip back into their reliance on certain things. Here was the difference, though. If you were a pagan convert to Christianity, if you slipped back into your old way of life, it manifested in a very unique way. It manifested in an obvious way. That person claimed to follow Jesus, but now they are living la vida loca. But, if one of these Jewish converts who had been schooled and trained in these Old Testament teachings slipped back, it was subtle. It was reliance on... It was relying on the things of the Old Covenant, not the New. Our slipping back as really Sunday morning attenders is much more subtle. Relying on what we knew instead of who we know. What we were instead of who we are. But these things, these elementary teachings that he's addressing, these were the only conversation points that the church could have. That was the second problem with it. Whenever conversation would begin to take place, they would gravitate towards these base level doctrines. Have you ever noticed how some Christians don't want to talk about anything but the what ifs and stuff that we are aren't dead set on? Or that when we're in our life groups, that if we're not careful and we've not been sharpened by the tools of Scripture, that we gravitate toward the same answers to questions regardless of what that question happens to be? We don't do the work of understanding the grind of it all. We treat spiritual things like they're TJ Maxx. We go in. We find the brand that we recognize the most. We hope that that brand fits us well. And we're going to go with it because it costs the least. That's not Christianity. That's shopping for a vacuum cleaner. To go in and find the thing that we recognize the most that will cost us the least and to move from there. According to Gallup, they do polls. That's why they're called Gallup polls. 75% of Americans still identify as Christians. The last three surveys have given us those numbers. 8% would claim that they follow Jesus. There is not much definition as to what following Jesus is, but we shift from 75 to 8 just with the wording alone. In Lake Jackson, the numbers are similar. And we are all going to push every church, not just Grace Bible, First Baptist Church, Brazos Point, the, the Methodist churches in town. We are all going to push our people to invite for Easter with everything from invite cards to yard signs like where our churches are running for political office. Hashtag Grace Bible 2020. <laughs> we are going to push for things. Why? Because 75% of people claim to follow Jesus and it doesn't even seem like 8% is. So what's taking place here? Is there What is going on in the hearts and minds of these people in regard to who God is? There's falling away. And here we go. Let's go. Verse 4. For it is possible. 
In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, it's impossible, we see, then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Wait a second, it sounds like we're talking about losing our salvation. Pastor Chad, is that what you're talking about? No, let me let you know me. I'm cards on the table, that's how I like to play. Uh, I don't even like cards, but we'll just put them there. I believe that your salvation was predestined before the foundation of the world. I believe that because the Bible says it. Like the Bible teaches us that. And there's this consistent theme through the scriptures that God holds his people, that he, he, he loves his people. It sounds like you can lose your salvation, though. Look at these words. He tastes the gift. He shares the spirit. He tastes the goodness of the word. What he's saying is much more important than that. Remember the we we talked about a few weeks ago? Whenever you preach to a room of people, you use words like we. But when I use words like we, I'm assuming. I'm assuming you kind of agree with me. Sometimes. Except for those of you who tell me after service I didn't agree with what you said. Some of those people go to different churches now. <laughs> but, we, but we have the we. The we. And some of you don't agree with me and I'm fine with that. The we is believers and unbelievers. It, it's everybody. Because when you're talking, you're making strong assumptions. He's making strong assumptions. And as he talks to these people, here's what we see. This teaching is about the nature of real salvation to a general audience. And what he's saying about salvation is this. That salvation will endure until the end. And let me be clear. So we're thinking maybe screw tape letters. We know that C.S. Lewis. If I'm Satan, if I'm the devil, and I'm not... The most effective way for me to depower this text or any text is to cause any of you to hear this. This isn't about you. When we read through the Bible, we have to wrestle with it and digest it as if this matters to us. So if you have a little struggle and tension, join the club because I've got it. But if you're good and you're good at being good, and you're satisfied with being good, and you're not sure as to how this could ever apply to you, I'm worried. I'm going to heaven when I die. That's popular. When, that's what we like to think about when we think about Christianity. If your greatest concern with heaven is your destination and the streets of gold, you may not get either. Because the purpose of the life of a believer is to make a big deal of Jesus. The blessing of your relationship with Jesus is heaven. The purpose of your salvation is not for you to eternally sample who God is. But we like that, right? We go to the food court with your kid. They've got that playground area in the middle and you've got that little path that you can walk at the Brazos Mall 
And the guy at the Philly Cheesesteak Connection will offer you a sample and you will immediately reach out to get the sample. But your kid doesn't want that, so they go to the place that offers the chicken and they give you huge pieces of chicken at that place. China Max? It's awesome. I'm doing restaurant recommendations on the regular in here and I apologize. They give you another sample and you move on. We just keep sampling and sampling and sampling. But we never take in all of it. We never dine on that. Verse 6, They've fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. He's saying, I don't know what to do with you. Verse 7 and 8, For the land has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receiving a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Here's the tone of the text that we can't miss. The writer of the book of Hebrews is saying to us, when he says all these things about tasting and sharing and tasting the goodness of the word, if all that we have learned together as a faith family about who God is and how he has loved us in Jesus, if that's not enough for you, I don't have anything else to say. If you've heard the gospel of Jesus and it just produces rebellion, I don't have anything else. I don't know what else to say to you is what he's saying. If in your head you believe God stood in the way of your eternal punishment, but you don't want to live as if that matters, I don't have anything else to say. If God speaking to you from his word only gets a reply of, oh, that's cool, I don't have anything else to say. If the culmination of your spiritual experience is sitting in this room Sunday in, Sunday out, and not pursuing the Lord, because that can happen because you showing up somewhere doesn't mean you pursue God. I don't have anything else to say. This warning is for a congregation that the writer is helping to advance. The people have been stirred together. Some of them have been stirred genuinely. Some of them have been stirred not genuinely. There's this movement they're in. Henry Blackaby says this, you cannot continue life as usual or stay where you are and go with God at the same time. Go forward. But the writer loves these people. We see that. He loves them because they have actual faith. Some of them do. And he wants to acknowledge that among them, there are some who are really believers. And he doesn't want to leave them with this bitter, I don't have anything else to say to you. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not Unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. On Wayne Grudem says this about this idea that believers, the God's future for us and his full assurance for us is tied in not what we do, but what God has done in our place. The perseverance of the saints means that all the perseverance of the saints, not a scary word, it's just the P in tulip, we'll go with it. The perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. 
and that only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. Evangelist Vance Havner says it in this chicken fried way, which I love. A faith that fizzles at the finish was flawed at the first. God is saying to us in these verses that His people, those who belong to Him, are going to pursue Him. And their pursuit of Him will produce this. And those works of righteousness will replicate into other people knowing and pursuing Him and producing works of righteousness. We want to know, right? I want to know that I have assurance and that the assurance that God has given me is from Jesus. John Piper says, God has given, God has done and said so much to give his people assurance and security. It is an assault on his integrity to say that we can't have it. Let me give you some verses about your assurance in Jesus. So let's shake our heads and go with it as a church. 1 John 5, 13. I write this to you that you may believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 5. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Hebrews 10, 21 and 23. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. God is saying to us that you can be sure. You can have assurance. And the reason that you can have assurance is not because of how faithful you are in your 27, 34, 51 years of life. Our assurance is based in the eternal God of the Bible always being faithful. He never ain't faithful. That's bad grammar, but pretty good Bible. He is faithful to us. Well, but I want to win. Like W-H-E-N. I would like to have a win. Do I have a date that I can look back at? Do I have a point in my life that I can cling to? It's good to have that. Knowing that it's helpful. Knowing that you are a believer is essential. Let's do this. So I've got a stool on this stage. Hopefully it will hold me. A year ago, I don't know if it would. But I've dropped a few LBs. So we'll go with this stool. If I sit down in this, everyone will agree that there was a point where I sat down. If I were to bring you on stage and have you sit down, you would say, there is a point where you sat down. Let's imagine that you stand up from said stool. Right? And I begin to have a conversation with you about the said stool. The best proof that you are seated is that you're seated right now. Like, I can tell you that I'm sitting because I'm sitting. So let's imagine that you uh, take this stool and you sit down on the stool, but then you get up. You get up from the stool. I've gotten up from the stool. It's hard to have a conversation with myself. This is very soliloquy. But I get up from the stool and you begin to ask me questions about sitting and standing from the stool. And I can tell you, you're like, Chad, you're not on the stool, but I begin to give you this conversation about how important the stool was to me. And I remember, begin to remember, I remember when I was 13 years old, like actually I remember when I was 6 years old and I was at a pew at my church and I had a preacher who could just preach and while he was preaching, he made me tear up a couple of times and at the end of the service I walked to the very front of the room and I remember when I sat down. 
There was even a Sunday where he put my stool into the baptismal. And he let me sit down on the stool in the baptismal. And people came and I wore a white robe like I was an angel. And everyone took pictures. It was the 80s and I had bangs. And I was on the stool, man. And I began to weep for you. But then when I was 13 years old, right? Because I got to be 13 eventually. And I began to be more abstract and concrete. And I began to question my sitting down. So I sat down with my youth pastor at a park while everyone else was playing football, but I was tired of running. I started to ask him questions. And he assured me, again, that I'd sat down. So I sat down again. But even at this point in my life, you look at me and I tell you how important my salvation is and how much God means to me and how much God has loved me and how much God has cared for me. And I can take you back to the moment where I sat down. But the best assurance that I have sat down on that stool is not everything that I can tell you. It's not all that I can say about the stool. It's not that I can even pick the stool up. It's not that my church gave me a certificate about the stool. The best assurance of the fact that I sat down on the stool is that I'm sitting down right now. The best assurance of your salvation is not the verses that you remembered when you were 12. It's not that we dunked you in water when you were 15, drug our horse trough in. The best assurance of your salvation is not some experiencing God study that you did a few years ago, though it may be fantastic. The best assurance of your salvation is that you are sitting in it right now, postured before God as if He matters to you more than anything else. So let's go back to where we started, those starting points. Salvation and that information, that is essential, so let's move forward with it. Community, it's important, so be part of it. Read your Bible. Two of these three are habits. And I know that habits are difficult. But do you realize that if you're being honest, 40% of everything we do is a habit. The way you back out of your driveway is a habit. The, your drive to work is a habit. The Whataburger you eat on the way to work is a habit. Make your community a habit. Make time in the Bible a habit. Because these habits have eternal significance. Because they help us to remember that we're sitting down. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Jesus, you're good to us as a people. And you have been faithful to us in the middle of our faithlessness. God, I pray that you will convict hearts this morning. Convict my own faithlessness. Convict the faithlessness that we can see 
in each of us. Lord, I pray for every one of us who struggled that we find assurance in the fact that we do. Lord, let us sit down and posture ourselves before you as if you matter more than anything else. Let that posture shape the way that we spend time in your word. Let that posture shape the way that we see our Bibles. Let that posture shape the way that we look to our neighbors. Let that posture help us to share our faith because we're sitting down in the assurance that you save. You really, really save. So let us have stuff that we look back to, but let those things that we look back to come alongside of a faith that is living and active now. If you need me, I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room. And if you would like to pray with me, I would love to do that. If you would like to... um, I'm there for whatever. So come see me.